I'm so happy to see all of you, and I'm so happy to be here. I always think back to beginnings, you know, when um, Joseph and uh, Jack and I co-founded the Insight Meditation Society in Barry now 26 years ago, or um, never knowing, you know. I remember the conversations we used to have, well, if it closes in a year, it closes in a year, you know. <laughs> That's just the way it is. And conversations with Gil walking along some place or another, Nepal or Burma or here, and then watching uh, this whole community grow. It's just really fantastic. So why don't we start with a short meditation. I'll suggest some instructions if any of you have not meditated before. If you're accustomed to practicing in your own way, please feel free to do that. But just as a a simple way of gathering our attention and our energy to arriving more fully, might begin with sitting comfortably, closing your eyes if that feels comfortable, and just letting your attention first rest on listening to sound, whether it's the sound of my voice or other external sounds or internal sounds. And feel your way into that space where you don't feel responsible for prolonging the sound or stopping the sound. You're simply meeting the experience in a relaxed, open way. And bring that kind of relaxed attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you may discover. And then the feeling of your breath, the in and out movement of air at the nostrils or the rising falling movement at your chest or your abdomen. See if you can feel just one breath from the beginning through the middle to the end without seeking what has already gone by and without leaning forward in anticipation of even the next breath. Just this one. And whenever you find your attention has wandered, see if you can practice gentleness and compassion, some ease of heart, and simply let go and begin again. Come back to hearing the sound, feeling the body, feeling the breath.
And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes, relax. So welcome back from wherever, whatever adventure you might have just had. I always like to try to begin some kind of gathering with a short period of meditation because I think it expresses so much about the nature of gathering. Just as we have come here from different activities and whatever energy it took to get here, when we sit, it's like we take our normally perhaps fragmented, distracted energy and gather it together, bring it home, so that we have a sense of really coming back to ourselves. And of course, I've come here to talk about faith, my favorite thing nowadays to talk about. I first started writing this book about five years ago, much to my amazement. I looked at the date on top of my first notes, and it was 1997. I thought, oh, no. And actually, some of you here are my very good friends, and you've heard me through the years say, can't go out to dinner, I have to write a book, <laughs> you know, can't do this, I have to go write, you know, and so I'm, I'm a little bit in a state of shock. I think, it's done, I can't believe it. Uh, a friend of mine, a woman named Susan Griffin, some of you may know her or know her through her work, helped me at some difficult points in the process and primarily through two comments she made. One was, she said to me, you have to stop thinking of yourself as the person writing this book and think of yourself as the first person who gets to read it. Which is true, because you're sitting right there in front of the screen, the computer screen, and no one else is there. You're the first one who gets to read it. And that was a huge help for all the kind of complexity and, and fearfulness I had about doing it right and all the kind of ego reference thoughts that were driving me at certain points. I thought, okay, I'm not writing it. You know, just, just get to read it. And then she said something very important. She said, you know, a lot of people think you sit down to write this kind of book because you really know the topic and you know what you want to say and you just want to put it out there. You have something to impart. She said, but really, most likely you decide to write this kind of book because you need to explore the topic. You don't know what you want to say. And the whole process is one of that exploration. And that, of course, is how it was. When I first told people way back when that I wanted to write a book on faith or I was writing a book on faith, I was often met with derision, scorn, amusement, chagrin, bewilderment, anxiety, revulsion. Actually, I tell a story in the book, which I'll tell here. And I, um, the first time I ever taught a workshop on faith, because of course that was part of my learning about it, was just being in the environment of many people discussing it. Um, the first time I taught a workshop on faith, I was down in Los Angeles in this beautiful canyon setting. And all morning, I kept asking for questions just to be met with dead silence every time, which is not usually a good sign. <laughs> and then just after lunch, we began again, and unsolicited, the person sitting right in front of me and right in front of the tape recorder came bursting out with, I came to Buddhism to get away from all this shit. <laughs> and 
And I went, whoa, <laughs> this is a controversial topic. <laughs> this is going to press a lot of buttons. And now I've, I'm here as uh, part of the um, tour that the publisher has sent me on. And every time I'm having a radio interview, I think, don't tell the story. <laughs> you can't use that word. <laughs> you know, don't say it. But that was not an uncommon reaction because so many times uh, people had associations with the word, with the concept, with the reality of faith as being something oppressive. It was a commodity that either you had or you didn't have. And if you didn't have enough or you didn't have the right kind, according to someone else's view, you would be condemned, maybe forevermore. Faith was something that divided people into a kind of tribal mentality and a sense of superiority and inferiority. Faith was often associated with a dogmatic adherence <clears throat> to a set of beliefs. It was often associated with an unquestioning surrender to someone else's authority, a person or a tradition, a doctrine. And so because of that, it also had implications of a loss or a lack of self-respect, less love and compassion for yourself, and simply a, an adherence to some doctrine. And yet I don't think and never thought faith needed to mean that. Because when I looked at my own life and I looked at the lives of my friends and my meditation students, I felt there was something that led us on, that had us able to go forward when things were really difficult or confusing or uncertain. There was something that took a person off the sidelines of life and brought them right into the center of some possibility so that the good things of life didn't seem to belong to somebody else only. And there was something in our hearts that said, my life can be different too, or there's change, there's potential. Tomorrow doesn't have to look like today, or the self-image I've been carrying all these years doesn't have to dominate anymore. For me, faith has all of those connotations. The traditional meaning uh, translated from uh, Pali and Sanskrit, or a traditional meaning, um, is to place the heart upon, to offer one's heart. And to do that, I think first we need several realizations. One is that we have a heart. And the other is that the offering of our hearts is a very precious thing because delivered with our heart is our life's energy. And so we need discernment and intelligence and a critical understanding of what we are moving toward, of what we're offering our heart to. But I think we, we wouldn't survive without faith. Faith is the quality because of that offering of our hearts that has us participate in life, engage in life, move toward life. It has us admit the unknown. Because you know how we like to think we know what's going to happen tomorrow or tonight or this afternoon. That life is kind of tidy and manageable and predictable and we feel safe if we feel that we're in control. Yet, of course, that's not how things are. So to admit the unknown, to admit the insecurity, uncertainty of life, and still to move forward, that's faith. 
I had a, a dialogue. Um, I use this story in the book too. Once with a psychiatrist friend in New York City, and now it's funny looking back at the dialogue because looking back it seems incredibly reductionistic. I think why were we talking about that? But the conversation was about what is the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship. We discussed methodology and systems and points of view. And at one point, he said to me, and these were his words, he said, if you put any good psychotherapist up against the wall, they would be forced to admit that it's love. It's the love in the room that is the real healing element in the relationship. And then I had one of those experiences. You know what it's like when you hear these words come blurting out of your mouth and you think, where did that come from? (laughs) Did I mean to say that? Well, I heard blurting out of my mouth, well, for all we know, the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship is the fact that the person showed up for their appointment. And even though it was a complete blurt, (laughs) I looked at it and I thought, you know, there's some truth to that. And that's faith. It's the faith that gets us out of bed, gets us to show up, gets us to try, It's faith that allows us to see the possibility latent within change. Everything is changing all of the time. And that doesn't just mean loss and dissolution and insecurity. It also means possibility, always. That my book launched the first night that the book was out. It was August 5th in New York City. And the psychiatrist came to, to Barnes & Noble where I was speaking. And so I told that story in his honor. And he came up to me at the end, having bought a book, for me to sign it. And he said, you're wrong. It's love. (laughs) (laughs) So I took his book and I put in giant letters, it's love, with all these exclamation points next to it. And August 5th also happened to be my birthday. So some friends gave me a birthday party afterwards, which he came to. And about two hours or two and a half hours into the birthday party, he came up to me and he said, actually, I'm wrong. You're right. (laughs) It's faith. He said, I've been thinking about it all night, you know. And he said, it's the person's kind of nascent, quiet faith in their own Buddha nature, in their own possibility for evolution, for growth, for love, for compassion, for awareness. That's what's most healing. So I said, give me back the book (laughs) so I can change it, which he didn't. Faith is what gets us to try. And that has nothing to do with that, that conventional sense of adherence to dogma or doctrine. One of the reasons I wanted to write the book was because I wanted to help us reclaim the word. I wanted to feel that as a community of beings, we could be more fully supported by the quality because we were open to it rather than feeling resistant in some way, shunning it. Because I think it is a tremendous support. Okay, from the uh, Buddhist perspective, there are three stages or levels of faith. And the first of these is called bright faith. Bright faith is what happens when we meet somebody, maybe a teacher or a mentor, or we read piece of poetry or or a text that's very inspiring to us or 
even when we're perhaps in a, a certain setting in nature or a sacred site that moves us very deeply. Bright faith is the feeling we have when it's as though we have been sitting facing a shut door and suddenly the door swings open. And what has seemed a sense of limitation and containment and enclosure now reveals a far vaster expanse. It's like falling in love. We're inspired, we're uplifted. We really know in that moment that our life can be different, that we can move, we can, we can go forward. That's bright faith. It's usually the place where we begin. It's, it's like a, a beginning stage. It might be an essential beginning, but it's just a beginning. As uplifting and exhilarating and marvelous as the feeling is, it's also kind of risky. It's risky in a couple of ways. One is that the feeling can be so intoxicating that we don't want to do anything to endanger our proximity to what seems to be the source of the feeling, which is the tradition, the person, the doctrine, whatever it is. And so we become afraid. The other danger is that it's very unstable. It's very unsteady. We might, for example, meet one teacher one day who says, well, why don't you live in this way? And we think, yeah, that's how I want to live. And then we meet another teacher another day who says, well, why don't you live in that way? And you think, yeah, forget that first person, you know. I want to live like this. And, and so the, the sense of faith and possibility that we have is not centered in our own experience but is dependent on the voice of somebody else. And so it's very risky. The development of faith, from the Buddhist point of view, moves from that stage of bright faith, which is how many of us get started, <clears throat> to what is called verified faith, where faith is ground, grounded in our own experience of what's true. That's where we are centered. And the movement, interestingly enough, from bright faith to verified faith is done by way of doubt. It's done by questioning everything, doubting, wondering, examining, investigating, discerning. The right kind of doubt, which is based on our conviction that we have the right and the ability to know the truth for ourselves, isn't detrimental to faith at all. We think here conventionally in the West, that doubt is the enemy of faith, and I don't really think it is. I think if anything is the opposite of faith, it's despair. You know, faith is that which links us up. It links us up to a sense of possibility, to engagement, to participation, to connecting to the deepest strengths we have inside, to connecting to a larger vision of life that includes others. The opposite of that is despair, where we feel cut off, all alone disconnected. I read once that uh, this woman in Hiroshima after the dropping of the bomb described her loss of faith in those words. She said, when the bomb dropped, we all became completely separate human beings. Now that is a state of loss of faith. But doubt, when it's the right kind of doubt, can only enrich our faith because it will lead us on from that more dependent, emotional, fragile kind of faith to something that is more grounded. 
So there's bright faith and then verified faith. And then the last evolution of faith is what's called unwavering faith or abiding faith, where we've known something so deeply for ourselves, we've verified it so completely that it's like it's in our bones, we've become it. It's not something we're presenting anymore as an idea or a thought, we're living it. And that's, that's abiding faith. We develop abiding faith in, just like the psychiatrist said, in our own Buddha nature, so to speak. Our own capacity for love, for awareness, for meeting what the moment brings, even though it's the situation itself may not be something we can control. And we develop abiding faith in a larger picture of life that does include our connection, all of us, to one another. That first, our ability to, to meet the moment is true in any circumstance, any situation. I was once teaching meditation at a, a federal women's prison here in California, and uh, it was an interesting experience because I kept forgetting where I was because it just genuinely felt like simply people gathered together. And I would be reminded because most of the questions would begin with the phrase, well, when you're in prison, something, something. This one woman said, well, when you're in prison, it seems especially important to try to live in the present moment because there's nothing easier than to dwell constantly in the past, which you cannot change, or to live longing for a future which is not yet here. She said, if you do that, it's like you're not really alive. And then she looked at me and she said, I choose life. I choose to be alive. Which I consider, in many ways, a kind of quintessential statement of the kind of faith I'm talking about that movement toward what is happening, knowing that we have the capacity inside of us in any circumstance to meet it, to make something of it. I was recently uh, teaching a retreat at Spirit Rock Center um, in July, and Ramdas came to visit one night for dinner. And um, as you know, he's uh, a spiritual leader and mentor. He's an old friend. I've known him since my first meditation retreat, which means more than 30 years. Um, and he had a, a very severe stroke in, uh, I think it was 1999. And uh, he came to dinner. And then at the end of that, uh, we had to go teach and he had to leave. And he is in a wheelchair. And came over to the edge of the stairs and he decided that he wanted to walk down the stairs instead of going down the ramp. So that meant someone had to lift him up while others of us quickly disassembled his wheelchair and step by laborious step, leaning on somebody, he went down those stairs. Then he got to the bottom and we quickly reassembled his wheelchair and somebody pivoted him to put him in the wheelchair and just about dropped him. And we just about dropped the wheelchair. And those of you who've been to Spear Rock know it's all hills. 
you know, so that would have been <laughs> a big slide. We got him in the wheelchair, and he made his way over to the edge of the car door where he, he grabbed the door and he hoisted himself up to get in the car. And this whole time, my heart was sinking further and further. And I was quite troubled, and I thought, well, look how laborious it is for him just to go out to dinner, you know, like... Um, this is so sad and this is so complex and what an ordeal. And, and he's standing up on the car, leaning on the car door, and I was standing directly in front of him when he looked at me and gave me a beautiful, radiant smile. And he said, none of this makes any difference at all. You know that. And I thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> right, I do know that. You know, and I don't think he was coming from the place of it makes no difference as a kind of sullen withdrawal and resentment, hidden resentment. But we can touch a place of connection to ourselves and to others that is not going to be shattered. It's not going to be ruined as we go through so many different kinds of difficult situations. That's the repository of our faith. And the quality of faith, as we, as we experience it, as we go deep inside and we find those strengths of, of awareness and love and compassion, is something that connects us to one another. When My subtitle is Trusting Your Own Deepest Experience. And, um, there's always something when you're writing a book. Some of you know that. You know, either you can't get the title or you can't get the subtitle or you can't get the cover. Something is always going wrong. And in this case, it was really the subtitle. It came in like two minutes before it went to the printer. You know, practically, what should we do? You know, um, and it's great trusting your own deepest experience because I think it's it sort of tweaks the word faith because that's not how we usually think of faith. But it's also a little difficult because it can sound very individualistic and solitary and removed, like, I trust my deep experience, but you don't have much of one, or, you know, <laughs> something like that. And, um, and yet I really believe that when we go very deep inside and we uncover these strengths, this is what links us all to one another. This is the... You might say classically, it's the Buddha nature we all share as a potential, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what sorrow we may have experienced, that this potential exists with everybody. So I believe that learning to trust our own deepest experience is the conduit. It's one conduit to having a life that, that reflects that connection, all of us to one another. I was teaching in New York with a, a friend of mine, um, Bob Thurman, who uh, used an example that was both very New York and very Bob. He said, imagine you're on a subway and these Martians come and they zap the subway car so that you are all going to be stuck there together forever. <laughs> he said, what do you do? If somebody's hungry, you feed them. If somebody's freaking out, you calm them down, you comfort them, because you're going to be there together forever. And in some ways, this is actually the truth of things. This is how things are. And our faith can, can open us to that, that picture of life so that we're responsive to one another, we care about one another.
and we take care of one another. I wanted to call the subtitle From Lucy to Lala, and this is why, The Journey from Lucy to Lala. Um, Early on in the book, I tell a story about a time that uh, some friends and I were moving into a house that some people had uh, rented for us to do a retreat in. And when I walked into the bedroom that was set aside as mine, I saw that someone had left a a cartoon from the Peanuts comic strip on one of the desks. And in the first frame of the cartoon, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown, and she says, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is, the problem with you is that you're you. (laughs) And then in the second frame, poor Charlie Brown looks at her and says, well, what in the world can I do about that? Then in the third and final frame, Lucy says to him, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. (laughs) And somehow whenever I was doing walking meditation past the desk, my eye would fall on that very line. The problem with you is that you're you which was the story I told about myself, and it's the story many, many of us tell about ourselves. I think poor Charlie Brown probably suspected it his entire life, you know, <laughs> that if he were to truly know, know who he were, was, it would be very disconcerting, you know. There would be not Buddha nature that he uncovered, but something deficient, defective, unpleasant, unlovable. So we begin the journey of faith with Lucy. It's like the Lucy voice. And we end it, I believe, with what I'm uh, calling the Lala voice. Lala was a 14th century mystic from Kashmir. Her uh, full name was Laldead, known as Lala. And I thought I'd finish just by reading you uh, from the epilogue of the book. And that always strikes me as very funny because it's like reading the culmination of the murder mystery before (laughs) you read the mystery but anyway I start with a short poem by Lala who says at the end of a crazy moon night the love of God rose I said it's me Lala as if renewing her acquaintance with an old friend Lala addresses her God casually sweetly intimately Enchanted, I felt inspired by her winsome response, her calm expectation of being remembered. Hi, you remember me, don't you? Lala offers herself completely, no reticence due to feeling a lack of self-worth, no questioning of her absolute right to be there, face-to-face with the vastness of her ultimate truth. Without any doubt, the heart she brings is worthy. For a long time after discovering this poem, it was my touchstone. I wanted to be like Lala, close up to the truth of life. One day, faced with an urgent turning point in my life, that favorite line arose in my mind, transformed into a phrase that launched me from admiration of Lala to standing in her place. It was no longer, it's me, Lala, but it's me, Sharon. It's me, Sharon, right up against the question of what it means to be alive and having to someday die. It's me, Sharon, part of a constantly changing reality, with all surety falling away. It's me, Sharon, not even one slight step removed from my own potential for love and awareness and my ability to realize them. It's me, Sharon, no longer appreciating from a distance 
Lala's upfront, textured, vibrant connection to her truth, but directly face to face with my own. Like Lala, we all have that absolute right to reach out without holding back toward what we care about more than anything. Whether we describe the recipient as God or a profound sense of, the, of indestructible love or the dream of a kinder world, it is in the act of offering our heart and faith that something in us transforms. And what may have been merely a remote abstraction flames into life. It's me, Lala, becomes it's me, whoever we are, proclaiming that we no longer stand on the sidelines, but are leaping directly into the center of our lives, our truth, our full potential. No one can take that leap for us, and no one has to. This is our journey of faith. So, do you have any questions, any comments? Someone has to ask me a question after that story. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to talk about? Yeah. Yeah, I have a question. You talked about doubt, and then you mentioned if it's the right doubt, it's um, appropriate and positive. So I wonder what's the right doubt and what's not the right doubt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definition of that one. Okay, the question was about... Uh, what's right doubt and what's incorrect doubt or unhelpful doubt. Um, The right kind of doubt, I think, is based on that conviction that we have both the right and the ability to know the truth for ourselves. And so we examine with a good motivation. We want to understand. You know, we want to know. We want to explore. And we're willing to question everything. It's not a meek state of holding back but it's based on that kind of motivation of of wanting to know, wanting to understand. The wrong kind of doubt um, or unskillful kind of doubt is is called in the Buddhist teaching skeptical doubt. And I think a modern translation of that might be cynicism, you know, which is a more hardened stance that uh, has us removed from an experience rather than coming close to explore it. We stand aloof, withdrawn, Um, my experience of that state is that it's often based on fear. And I tell a story in the book about a a kind of desolate period in my childhood where my response became, uh, in seeing certain things, well, I didn't want that anyway, you know, because I was convinced I wouldn't get it. Um, And I think that is a common response when we have that kind of fear to remove ourselves and to create that sort of armor. And um, There's a story about the first person that the Buddha is said to have encountered after his enlightenment um, when he got up from the Bodhi tree and, and began walking to uh, another town. The first person that came upon him said, who are you? You know, and one would imagine he was particularly shiny and radiant and you know, uh, apparently manifesting all of those qualities. It was only 49 days after his enlightenment. And the person said, who are you? And are you a deva? Are you a celestial being? Are you a human being? Who are you? And, and the Buddha said, I'm an awakened one. And the man said, yeah, maybe. And he walked away, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, and you think, well, couldn't he have stayed to check it out, you know? <laughs> Like, he didn't have to believe him, you know, which would just be gullibility. He didn't have to say, oh, great, you're, you're awakened. But he could have stayed and questioned and wondered and maybe put some things into practice to see what it would do for him. 
you know, that would have been a better kind of doubt than just saying, eh, you know, and kind of walking away. And I think, you know, we, we can see, sometimes we don't realize we have the, um, the right to doubt, you know, and it's very, very important that we do. And yet sometimes we also don't examine the basis of that kind of cynicism if we're feeling it, to uncover what, what feelings of deficiency or lack of self-worth or fear might actually be giving rise to them as well. Uh, could you speak a little bit about faith in different cultures? What I'm thinking of specifically is the absence of faith in this culture and then how to cultivate faith. Um, well, there, you know, it's funny because when I said I started writing the book five years ago, um, I don't know that the world has changed, but our perception of the world has changed very radically since September 11th and um, so many things. And so nowadays, I don't get quite the same response. You know, I don't hear that kind of faith, you know, although um, it's a tricky word, you know, and the word will be our entree to the, the state. And so I think uh, the conversation, the communication, the wondering about it is a very healthy thing. You know, it's, it's, a, different, it's a different experience nowadays. And so it'll be interesting and powerful to see what arises. Um, I think there are many ways of arriving at the development of faith. You know, meditation is, is a supreme example of that. Um, both because, as you know, uh, so many times we don't see the immediate result of what we're doing. And yet there's something in us that says, I'm going to keep trying. And it's only looking back often that we say, oh, look at that. That was an interesting period of practice, wasn't it? Something happened. I, I also tell a story in the book, many of you have heard me tell, about a time when I was teaching... Um, a day-long retreat in Oakland, uh, Metta retreat, loving-kindness retreat, and uh, it was across the street from the uh, Amtrak station. And when we do loving-kindness practice, we silently recite certain phrases, which are the articulation of the heart toward ourselves, wishing well toward ourselves or towards someone else, like, may you be happy or may you be peaceful, something like that. And when people... I like teaching in urban settings a lot because when people do walking meditation, they have to get out there, you know, and, and uh, you never know what you'll encounter. And a lot of people were doing their walking practice that day on the Amtrak platform, uh, you know, and <laughs> silently reciting those phrases. And this woman um, came back in to the auditorium and told us the story. She said she'd been doing just that as she was coming upon people silently saying, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. And then a train pulled in, and a guy got off the train, and so she began sending him, offering him the phrases of loving kindness. And then she took a good look at him, and she thought, you know, I don't like him. I don't like people like him. <laughs> you know, he looks rigid and uptight, and I don't like what he's wearing, and, you know, I just don't like him. And then she felt horrible. She thought, oh, you know, I'm supposed to be developing this loving heart and I'm standing here in judgment of this person and I'm not doing this right at all. This is terrible. And then, amazingly enough, he came up to her and he said, 
I've never done anything like this before in my life, but I'd like to ask you to pray for me. He said, I'm about to enter a very difficult circumstance, and you just seem to have a really loving heart. And, <laughs> you know, and of course, she was like completely dumbfounded, you know. And, um, you know, we don't always get that feedback right away, but that, <laughs> that doesn't mean that nothing's happening. You know, there's a lot that we have to take on faith as we uh, aim our hearts toward the good, as we practice meditation, as we come into the moment. So meditation is a profound way. And if you don't meditate, and that's the question I keep getting asked, like on the radio shows, like, but if you don't meditate, (laughs) um, then I think one of the most profound ways of developing faith is actually seeing change. You know, because when... uh, a physical ailment or a difficult situation seems inert and impermeable and solid and oppressive, um, then it's unbearable. But if we can see movement within it, you know, it may not just abruptly end, but we can see shadings of intensity, we can see flow, we can see different things happening, arising and passing away. Once we see movement, then we can have that sense of, of possibility re-arise, and that's faith. You know, so there are lots of ways of doing that. Um, and then, there, you know, there are very traditional ways of, of developing faith, um, which mostly have to do with what we pay attention to. Um, we certainly can have the habit of having our minds land on and almost exclusively emphasize the negative. You know, so there are all those reflections in Buddhist teaching, like look for the good in yourself, you know, look for the good in other people. And as you've heard me say, no doubt, you know, when I was first in Burma doing loving kindness practice and the instruction was try to look for the good in in people, um, I thought, no way. You know, I thought, that's what stupid people do, you know. I don't even like people who do that. Um, I'm not going to do that. But as I usually tell the story, I was far from home in a Burmese monastery where the nature of the teacher-student relationship is such that the teacher tells you to do something. You don't say, well, I don't feel like it. You know, you do it. And to my amazement, it actually made a difference. Not the difference I feared, you know, which was that I'd enter this state of complete stupidity. Um, but, you know, sometimes I would, I would kind of have a negative attitude about somebody, and I would remember one good thing they'd done to cheer someone else up or something like that. And if I remembered that, it didn't make all the negative go away, which is what I was afraid of, you know, that I was going to fog out. Um, but... I felt a sense of some kind of kinship with them instead of complete alienation and separation. And so, you know, how we use our attention, what we place our mind on is very important. The faith you're talking about seems to be a very general attitude, which in my mind is shading into just an optimism and hope. Do you want to distinguish those? Um... Well, hope, you know, Buddhism is funny because it uses language very, very precisely, you know, and so the conventional meanings of words here may not be exactly what's meant there, but 
The word hope is used in Buddhist teaching often to mean attachment. You know, uh, it's not just that we're hopeful something will work out, which can be a very good attitude, but we have attachment to it. And um, the necessary companion to that kind of hope, which I call fixated hope in the book, is fear. You know, so we get into a hope, fear, hope, fear, hope, fear cycle and actually use the example of Ram Dass's stroke. Not his experience, which is his, you know, but my experience when he had the stroke and how um, I spent so long uh, that first night, you know, that I'd heard he was sick, kind of spinning out scenarios of what I wanted to see happen. You know, I wanted him to be as good as he was before, maybe even better you know, and um, I kept saying, well, maybe he'll walk again but not talk, or maybe he'll talk again but not walk, or, you know, all of which was very natural, but it was an effort to assume some kind of control over the situation. And finally, I had this realization that he was going into the unknown, and the only way to go there in love and friendship with him was to admit that, because otherwise I was trying to contour reality in, in some way so that I'd feel better. And instead of just saying, I don't know, he doesn't know, and I'm with him anyway, you know, that actually was the moment of faith. Um, I think what I'm talking about is a little different even than the conventional meaning of hope, you know, because the opposite of um, fixated hope is not hopelessness, but fearlessness. But um, even the conventional meaning of hope is just a little different in that. I think we see very clearly that things may not work out according to our liking. Um, That life is what it is. And that we might and should try uh, for ourselves and for others uh, to make a better situation, you know, with with a wholehearted effort and uh, an unstinting effort And at the same time, we need to accept that life is as it is, that we're not going to be in control of the unfolding of events. And once uh, some friends and I were hiking in um, a national park here, and uh, we decided we were going to hike in for three days, and then on the fourth day, we were going to turn around and retrace our steps, so come out along the same path we'd gone in on. And... um, This was still the third day, so we were still going in. And it was a day of many, many hours of very steady, constant downhill walking. And at one point, it's like uh, this person and I were struck by the simultaneous realization, and we both just stopped. And we looked at each other, and he said to me, in a dualistic universe, downhill can only mean one thing. And he was right. Because the next day when we turned around to retrace our steps, it was many, many, many hours of very constant uphill walking. On a certain level, not on all levels, uh, certainly, but on a certain level, it's a dualistic universe. We go up, we go down, there's pleasure, there's pain, there's praise, there's blame. It's just going to be like that. And so uh, the faith that I'm talking about needs to admit that. Otherwise, it's not truthful. You know, we still want and hope and arrange and try and plan and all of that. But underneath there needs to be the wisdom that we're not going to be in control and still we can have the faith to meet the situation, whatever it might be.
No one's ever accused a Buddhist, Buddhist of being an optimist, actually. <laughs> That's very interesting. So when I do loving-kindness meditation, I seem to be in that hope here mm-hmm. a bit. It might have touched on an answer from when you just talked about having faith through all that. I had a little wisdom. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? What's your experience? Well, my experience is that um, I do a lot of loving-kindness meditation for myself and others because I have such a, a fear of loss of my own life and others' lives. And, and it's, it's a whole fear cycle, and it's not, there's not enough faith in it. Yeah, and so I'm buying a book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the comment was about doing loving-kindness meditation in that kind of hope-fear cycle, really out of a kind of fear, and, and I'll paraphrase, some effort to get a handle on things, you know, and, and make it okay, like to make the world safer by doing the practice. And, and, and it's completely natural. You know, we all bring all these kinds of motivations uh, into our practice, and um, I wouldn't be judgmental about seeing that. You know, once you see it, then you can relax, you know, and just bring more faith in, just let things be. Um, and then you'll find yourself very uptight again, you know, and then you can relax again. And I'll uh, finish by telling a story that you've already heard. <laughs> just about this uh, kind of... It's basically all about beginning again, no matter what. You know, no matter what happens, that's a kind of faith, too, is seeing we can begin again. We make a mistake, we've deviated from a chosen path, we've gone far away from our sense of aspiration, we can begin again. Um, And a good deal of the skill of meditation, I think, is both learning that exact thing and then how to deal with delicately and compassionately with the thing that has taken us away. You know, so you find yourself completely lost in fear. Even if it's disguised as hope, that's what it is, it's fear. Um, and you realize that, how do you deal with that realization? You know, so the story, going back to Lucy and Charlie Brown, is um, about a time when I was... Um, uh, giving a talk at a, I was scheduled to give a talk at a Hatha Yoga conference in Massachusetts, and the reason I went was because my own yoga teacher was teaching in the morning, and I knew I could do classes with him. And I sort of had in mind what I was going to say in the afternoon talk, and I knew I was going to use that illustration of Lucy and Charlie Brown. And anyway, so it's the morning, and I'm doing Hatha Yoga with this teacher, who's a fantastic teacher. And uh, he asks us at one point to do a wheel posture. For those of you who don't do Hatha Yoga, you know, you lie on your back in that posture and you put your hands up next to your ears and somehow you're supposed to hoist yourself up to form this kind of wheel, this bow in the air. And I'd never been able to do that, ever, ever. And so he said, okay, now we're going to do a wheel. And I thought, you're right. You know, <laughs> I lied down and I put my hands back there and, and I couldn't get up. And he came over to me, as he always does, and he said, did you get up? And I said, no, I can't get up. You know, I can't do that. And he, you know, helped me up and, and that was great. And then I started looking at my watch and thinking, well, you know, how much longer can he go on? You know, because <laughs> it's almost lunchtime and I have to go get ready for my talk. Surely he'll never make us do another one. And then he said... Now we're going to do another one. So I lied down, put my hands back there, and I thought, I can't do it, so what? You know, it doesn't matter. And 
And then he said, now I want you to let go of all self-limiting ideas about yourself. And I laughed, and I went up. (laughs) And I was so shocked, I said out loud, I said, oh, my God, I'm up. (laughs) I was right on the next mat was this woman from Yoga Journal, too. And I thought, oh, God, I just made an idiot. (laughs) But anyway, I'm up, and the very next thought that comes up in my mind was, you'll never be able to do this again. But having the Lucy Charlie Brown thing in my mind, because I was planning on using it in my talk, I heard that thought, you'll never be able to do this again, and I just said, chill out, Lucy. (laughs) And that was it. That was enough. You know, that's what I mean by the skill of meditation, is to see our fears, our uh, Lucy voice, our sense of limitation, our withholding, all of that. And even with that, not to create uh, an entire constellation of self-image around it. I'm such a terrible person, and I'm always so belittling of myself, you know, and just to say, chill out, Lucy, in effect, you know, whatever words you want to use. And then begin again. You know, if we have to begin again 30 million times, it doesn't matter. Because that's really the path. So I think I need to stop because I... uh, after signing books, need to get to the airport to go to Los Angeles. But it's been really, really wonderful to be here, and I'm really looking forward to November to coming back. So thank you.